Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to forgive and to be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Ever seen a no trespassing sign? Most of us know that we're not supposed to go there. But I began to look at some loopholes. How far does the no trespassing area extend? I mean, if there's a sign here, does it go for miles or just seven feet on either side? Does this apply to absolutely everyone? Or are there people who actually can trespass? Who has the ability to put the sign up? I mean, can any of us go to Home Depot, buy a bunch of signs, put them up wherever we want? If the sign is weather-worn or somebody's marked out the no part, does that mean we can trespass? When you're a kid in church and everyone is saying the Lord's Prayer and they get to that part, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, it makes total sense. All the times we went into our sister's room without permission or went into the spooky abandoned house down the street or we um, went into the neighbor's yard when they weren't looking in order to retrieve a ball that we'd thrown there. Forgive us our trespasses, Lord. Yes, forgive us our trespasses. Where we run into trouble is forgiving our sister for going into our room without permission or that guy who cuts across the lawn with his dog and his dog stops and poops there. Or um, a kid who steals pencils from our desk in school. Do we have to forgive their trespasses? When I was 13, we left the Baptist church. My grandparents took us to the Lutheran church. They, they had a contemporary worship service. It was the 70s. Um, we got to the Lord's Prayer. And instead of forgive us our trespasses, they said, Forgive us our sins. I had to ask Pastor Sam why the change. I was a lot more comfortable with trespasses than sins. You see, I no longer went into my sister's room, mostly because she locked it. Um, the spooky abandoned house down the street had actually burned up in the middle of the night. And um, I had enough motor control that I rarely threw the ball into the neighbor's yard anymore. Now, so I was feeling pretty good about not needing to be forgiven for my trespasses. And I figured I was still struggling with the whole forgiving other people for their trespasses, but I figured God would cut me some slack because I was still a kid. And remember, in the, in the Baptist church, I had just then hit the age of accountability. You, you can look that up. Yeah, forgiving people their sins. That's a whole different matter than forgiving them their trespasses. Pastor Sam let me know trespasses meant sins, and after a moment of discussion, I kind of had wished, wished that we'd never left the Baptist church because I liked their definition and their word a lot better. Then Pastor Sam told me Jesus almost always connects us being forgiven with our ability to forgive others, and that was really scary, scarier than that spooky old abandoned house that we used to trespass in. Why does Jesus almost always pair being forgiven with us forgiving others. Most common answer is God is trying to guilt us into forgiving people. The whole carrot and stick thing, this is definitely a big stick. I suffered and died for you and you can't even be nice to your little sister. But is God really in the manipulation and guilt business? I don't think so. Which means this means something completely different. Last Monday I had time to reflect because it's what you do on the anniversary of 9-11. You play the game of, do you remember? And the answer is yes. I clearly remember that day. The pain, the loss, the hurt, and the anger. 
the call to arms, the cry for vengeance. And as the mind always does, it wanders to the more immediate, the decisions of people we trusted that cost way too many lives on the island of Maui. And some of those people don't seem to care that their decisions have brought an awful lot of pain and distrust. And the cycle of pain and hurt and anger just keeps spinning faster and faster. If you aren't careful, that cycle of pain and hurt not only spins faster, but it starts to gather other things into an angry and, well, hurtful tornado that involves neighbors, family, friends, people at work, all the things that they did to hurt you, all their trespasses against you. And if you aren't careful, it begins to eat you alive. So Gallup did a survey in 2019, pre-pandemic, and discovered, now this is globally, 39% of people experienced significant worry and anxiety the day before. Uh, 35% reported stress. This is stress above, beyond, and normal. 31% reported experiencing pain that was chronic. 24% experienced sadness. 22% were angry. I remember, this is all pre-pandemic. Fast forward to 2023. 41% experienced significant worry or stress the previous day. 32% chronic pain. 27% sadness. And 23% anger. Now, with the exception of anger, all the other percentages had dropped several points from 2021. In other words, we hit the peak during the pandemic, and all of them had come down. However, anger remained at its pre-pandemic high. So what does it say when a quarter of us are angry, a third of us are in pain and sad, and over one-third of us are stressed and anxious? By the way, I should mention that many of those surveyed could not articulate exactly what they weren't angry or anxious about. The only people who were able to say, this is what causes me pain, were, yeah, the people that were in chronic pain. So what do you think it means when you trespass against me or if I trespass against you? There may be a reason that old King James word is actually better suited here because if somebody says you sinned against me, that brings up a whole argument about whether or not it was a real sin or whether there really is even such a thing as sin. But when we trespass against each other, that's a little easier to prove. The word trespass means to enter a place without permission, to step over a line. We do it all the time, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. We step on a person's honor. We cut across their doubts. We stomp on their vulnerabilities. We sneak past their need to be loved. We boldly walk through their pain without stopping. Forgive us, Lord, for our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Most of us know we need to be forgiven. We even have a list of things that we desperately want to know that we actually were forgiven for. These are the things that haunt us in our dreams or pop out on our head when we're stressed or push us toward that hungering darkness. Some of them are such silly things, long forgotten by everyone except us. Others are still fresh no matter how long it's been because the consequences of whatever happened is still very, very visible. Truth is, even as believers, we don't always know how to ask for forgiveness nor are we really good at receiving it. And the matter of believing, well, you know, when somebody forgives us, that tends to be the hardest. 
It turns out we're not alone, nor is our struggle with forgiveness unique. I mean, here's the conversation between Peter and Jesus. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother, and, and I'm going to add sister, because I had a sister, not a brother, who sins against me? It's a great question. Now, then Peter offers up what he thinks is a great answer. How about seven times? Good holy number. Back in the book of Amos, God pronounces judgment on the nations, including Israel, because they had broken his commandments three times and four times. When I say, by the way, I told you a million times, or when a child says, it's like $110 million. When we use those kind of phrases, we're actually not talking real numbers, okay? We're just using a metaphor of whatever that, that grammatical term is to say exaggeration, okay? But Peter seems to be offering a real number. Seven, as in not eight or nine. Wow, it's the limit. Now, fully expecting Jesus to come back with, you know what, Peter, that's more than generous. He's surprised when Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or as the King James says, 70 times seven. Wow, didn't see that coming. Humanity is all about fighting evil. I mean, look at all of the movies that have been successful lately. They're often about righting wrongs and defending humanity or the universe or whoever against bad guys. Most of the time, at least in theory, it involves truth and justice and whatever force of nature is required in order to vanquish the evil. The way we fight evil is by making sure people get what they have coming to them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You attack me, I fight back with a vengeance. Fair is fair. When it comes to the world wars and conflicts, us not doing anything would only make things worse. But doing something rarely accomplishes what we want and feel like we need to do. And often those who pay the greatest price aren't the ones who we're fighting against. That's where we struggle. When we take this to a personal level, when we get hurt, our natural instinct is to hurt back. You shove me, I shove you back. You call me names, I call you names back. You trespass on my property, I go get a giant pink flamingo and stick it in the middle of your property. But what happens when somebody hurts us and we can't? hurt them back. See, when I can't harm the one who harmed me, if I'm not careful, I wind up harming the people who love me, or at least the people who tolerate me. I hold on to the anger. I get frustrated. I allow it to build up inside me, or I live in fear of it happening again. And that fear, by the way, causes a whole different balance of emotions. And all this pain and anxiety and anger and hurt just feeds on itself. And by the way, when it runs out of things to consume, it starts to consume me. And I begin to lash out at others who have nothing to do with my hurt, my pain, or my loss. One of the things a counselor brings to this equation, and it doesn't matter, by the way, whether that counselor is a believer or not, but they recognize that the reality that what we do with our anger or loss or suffering or pain or anxiety determines how we're going to live. Far too much of our physical ailments are the result of repressed stress and anger. We hold so much back that it is literally killing us. And so Jesus offers us a way out. I know most of us just want God to fix everything. Stop all the wards, feed all the people, make everyone play nice. And we don't have time for the conversation today about why God doesn't do that. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't offered us a way of healing. Forgiveness is God's way of dealing with all the things we have to deal with. I know it sounds both simple and impossible at the same time. 
But that's because we are forcing our concept of forgiveness on God. We think that people should deserve our forgiveness, that they should have to earn it, that forgiveness is only given when they have paid enough, suffered enough, begged enough. But Jesus says that's not how forgiveness works. Sometimes we get so lost in the words on the page of the Bible that we forget why those words got written in the first place. We need to step back and realize the words are simply describing what was happening, what God was doing. And it's not really the words that matter. It's the heart of God poured out in a stable in Bethlehem, turning over tables in the temple, healing the sick, raising the dead, dying for a sinful world. The words in the Bible only matter because they are God's words telling us how much he loves us and what he is willing to do in order to save us. All those words in the Bible are simply God pouring out his love. And he says, I want you to know this. And so I've written these stories down for you. When Philip told us, when Philip told Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough. Jesus answered, have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. Why would you say, show us the Father? People are always saying, you know, how can I believe in a God I can't see? And we say, you know, exactly. And we point to the manger. We point to the cross. We point to the empty tomb. Okay, that last one, they can't see him because he's not there anymore. And that's the point, isn't it? You see, at the cross, God allows our broken human system of pointing fingers, fear, retaliation, hurting ourselves and hurting others to run its course. And just when we think God doesn't care or that God isn't noticing, we look up into the bloody and beaten face of Jesus, nailed to a cross, and we realize our suffering and pain and hurt and anger and sin ended with the suffering and the death of God. And before we run off, skipping down the lane of forgiveness, feeling really good about ourselves, we need to stop and pay a little attention as to show, well, how the suffering of God came about. God didn't lift a finger or call in a legion of angels to smash those who made him suffer or who nailed him to the cross. He didn't go off about how sinful we were and whether it was even worth trying to save a lost and a broken world. Instead of all things, he speaks forgiveness first to the thief hanging next to him on the cross who is convicted and admits that he deserves what he's getting and then to the crowds around him which would have included the soldiers who nailed him there and those who spit on him and those who called him names and those who were the ones who were the reason he was there in the first place. God cuts the world loose from our sin. says it ends right there on the cross. If you've been here on Easter, you know one of my things is to point out the tomb isn't actually empty. Oh, Jesus' body isn't there. <laughs> He's alive. But, but all of our sins, pain, hurt, anger, and loss are still in that tomb. And they're not ever coming out unless we crawl in the cave and drag them back out. And that's when God says, go and do likewise. Forgive, forgive as you have been forgiven. Cut others loose. Love them. And that's when it gets real. We understand what happened or we run in fear. Love actually does that to you. We either understand what happened, that, that God forgave us, that God loves us, or we run in fear and we let the cycle just keep going. Forgiveness is the total opposite of saying that what someone did is okay. I, I want to repeat that. Forgiveness is the exact opposite of saying what someone did is okay. What we are saying when we forgive is that we aren't going to let it eat us alive. We aren't going to absorb it. We aren't going to let them hurt us anymore so that we don't have to hurt others. 
even though we can't always process all that pain and loss. You see, what happened on 9-11 was not okay. What happened on Maui, not okay. What happened in the Ukraine and Morocco and China and Libya and California and Waikiki and your house and my house and Moanalua Road is not okay. And that's why we need to forgive. We cannot allow ourselves to be bound to sin or hurt or pain or anger. Such things try to negate what happened on the cross and the love that God poured out for us there. That is what Jesus wants us to understand with that not-so-simple story today. An important side note, this does not mean you allow people to hurt you over and over and over again. There are times instead of a you're welcome here sign, you need to say everyone except the one who is so hurt and so angry that only Jesus can help them is welcome here. And that other person is welcome if they get the help they need. But I can't allow you to continue to hurt me. That's what the section right before today's gospel lesson was. How when somebody won't stop trespassing, no matter how much grace we pour into them, we have to separate them for their own sake. We never stop praying or loving, but we do stop letting them hurt us. When we put up the no trespassing sign against certain people, it must always, and I repeat, always be out of love. Not out of fear, not out of anger, not out of punishment. Peace is not the absence of pain, loss, hurt, or anger. It is simply the presence of Jesus' love to cover all of it over. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.